I'm Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. We're here hanging out in our living room talking about, well, we were, we were talking about broadly technology and its role in our society and the loss of rituals and the loss of, you know, really any sort of connection with something that isn't oriented around consumerism and in many ways um, vast amounts of screen time being spent these days. And that led us to a discussion about China, and we're doing a reading from, what's what's this book that we're looking at? Noema. It's issue number three from fall 2022, Rupture is the topic. And so, Adriana, we're, we're, we're quarterly talking about... Magazine. What's that? It's a quarterly magazine. Quarterly magazine. And we were talking about China. In general, we've been sort of this morning looking at you know, what is the role of China in the world's economy, in the world's politics? How, as Americans, are we, in a sense, um, supposed to interpret this very powerful nation in the world today? And so we were starting to uh, explore some writing in this edition about that. So you want to share with us what the passage was? <coughs> So this one is, um, they have a, a whole section in here called Noema Insights, Ukraine, China, and a Shifting World Order. And they spoke with thinkers from around the world about the impact of the war in Ukraine and the rise of China. Um, and, you know, not necessarily mutually exclusive, but also obviously connected on this one planet. But this one passage is from... Um, is from Eric Schmidt, who is the former CEO and executive chairman of Google and Alphabet. So like, you know, these are all di different people's opinions. And of course you have to, understanding who is saying this is important in interpreting um, what he has to say. Mm -hmm. So deep tech rivalry between China and the West. Imagine a world where the majority of the platforms we use are designed in China. Deep technology areas have now become a central Chinese priority, including AI, robotics, semiconductors, synthetic biology, renewable energy, quantum computing, and more. China has a goal of dominance in AI by 2030 and in synthetic biology by 2035. It is the global leader in batteries, solar, and likely soon the other components in our new energy systems. The country produces roughly twice as many STEM graduates as the U.S., and it directly funds key innovators, picking and choosing winners. Its approach is like a closed system. Information and identity are tightly tracked, and we can assume that it will integrate different systems, for example, energy systems, through proprietary control. It also works hard to dominate the global standards bodies. It's easy to imagine that Chinese systems will be innovative, inexpensive, centrally controllable and global in reach. This is worrying since the present extent of the West's dependence on China is striking. Most of what you see around you has Chinese components, including furniture, building infrastructure, and of course, technology. The West must adapt now. It needs more investment in research and algorithms and testing infrastructure much tighter partnerships between the Western democracies that lead in technology, more immigration of high-skilled workers, 
and more partnerships between technology firms and their governments. Together, the West can stay ahead of the competitive threat from China. Divided, we are likely to lose. And once supremacy in one area moves to China, it is unlikely to return to the West. Um, what you, thoughts about that? I was also going to say, where, where was the section that you were reading, if you could share the part about um, them, China, supplanting um, the IMF? Was that something you were just sharing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or was that in there? That was in there. That's what I thought. Would you want to talk about this now before we go to yeah, the other one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what are your thoughts about it? Um, so, I think my thoughts always are, like, it kind of wraps it up in the last, in the last sentence. It says, together the West can stay ahead of the competitive threat from China, Divided, we are likely to lose, and once supremacy in one area moves to China, it is unlikely to return to the West. So, yeah. like, we are, what are we going to lose? That's my question. What are we going to lose? We're going to lose supremacy, we're going to lose dominance. Dominance of what? Supremacy of what? Over what? Um, you know, I think oftentimes in the media this is, and you know, mostly rightly so, this is pitched as like, freedom and our way of life and China is an authoritarian state and mm-hmm. um, you know they have mass surveillance of its citizens and you know all kinds of things like that um, although the zero COVID thing is really really testing you know the fact that they just dropped it the stuff that's going on right now is in China um, is really really um like the population always has control the people um, you know a billion plus people mm. however many in, unfathomable mm-hmm. number of people are in china always have the power over their authoritarian government that's why the government has um you know needs to keep everybody on a short leash um with mm-hmm. you know the idea mm-hmm. that they're doing it for the betterment of the state and this goes back to mao right great yeah. leap forward called everybody to like make these sacrifices for mm-hmm. these people's visions of like you know pulling people out of starvation and poverty and all of these kinds of things like that although that I, was I, the rhetoric i don't clarify well i mean people forward. even people who aren't maoists or like mao would say that they did a lot of you know they did a lot of good but like on, on how many deaths happened because of yeah. that so anyway, that's a whole, whole other, other con- conversation yes. that we could have. Well, and we could, it's, it's some relevance. That's interesting. It. I'm not a Maoist. Um, anyway, so I think there is just like the West has its way of doing things, right? And its comfort zone of how mm-hmm. we do our things. It's very Judeo-Christian. It's very yeah. patriarchal. Yeah. Um, it's it like, you know, lots of bread and circuses so we can get give the... Everybody, the feeling of freedom. Right. Meanwhile, there's subtle, subtler coercions and controls that happen um, um, with regards to, you know, the influence of society. Um, but I think that, you know, I've been feeling lately like this, this necessity to articulate, um, you know, and I don't, I, I don't think 
oftentimes this is this is articulated when we're talking about these energy these 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 uh the race for ai the race for you know energy uh, resiliency the race for developing all of these different platforms and everything like that mm-hmm. you know the arms race at that point in time was definitely a clear clear i feel to me anyway at that time a clear indication of like well we have to have i mean it is absurd as it was we have to have more nuclear arms because these guys have nukes and then everybody has to have nukes and then you know we're gonna not nuke each other because everybody just has nukes right Mad, and they called it yeah mutually assured destruction mutually assured destruction right well the same should be applied to all of these other things right because it's subtler because we've moved mm-hmm. from nuclear right. weapons into right. cyber warfare, yeah, and that is we have a you know, right, a world war going on right now that's that is happening, you know, with regards to psychographic micro targeting and all kinds of different, you know, cyber crimes and um, infiltration and all that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. everybody, China mm-hmm. does it, Russia does it, the United States. Mm-hmm. definitely does it we're all doing it um and uh and 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 so i'm saying this because i think that while we're like what <laughs> how do you determine what is the how do you deter how do you account truly account for those kinds of of um what would you call that? Where you're like, the United States needs to develop AI technology before China. What if China develops quantum computing before the United States? Like these are like quantum computing is um, is a, a remarkable and all at the same time a very frightening, um, um, you know, thing that we're supposedly standing on the verge of. Like there's no encryption with with um, with quantum computing because the computers can work so fast at an atomic level that there is basically they can break any kind of barriers of time that the computers that we now have are, are, are held down by. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of kind yeah. of curious implications about that, right? Like what if these AI computers, will that mean that we just don't have, that mean that we go back to like using paper money because we don't want to put our money in banks because, or we'll have to have banking that's off of any kind of computer technology because, because nothing, because can be nothing is safe anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how does that happen? Is that helpful? No, that's, that's a piece of paper. Um, so, and I, I think about that with regards to um, our, our, um, I think about these different things with regards to foreign policy and national security and safety and all of those things, not in like, you know, Department of Homeland Security, which was just uh, recently uh, found to be full of January 6th conspirators. And reminder to those of you who don't remember, Department of Homeland Security was created by George W. Bush right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So 
We all knew at that point in time that this was going to be a shit show. And, you know, here we are. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, China. I think, it's, I think it's easy to look at China when we're not putting the lens on ourselves and truly looking at, like, what the United States has promulgated and mm-hmm. what we're in the business of doing right now. Truly, we are. De- de-escalating certain things we are not trying to be the the world's cop we are not you know we still have we are still an empire we still have you know well, our we, protectorates all over the world that are military bases that have military bases on them yeah it's part of our american empire but um but the the fact that we're not just doing bombing of russia or entering into a war like that i mean obviously russia has nukes and then you know it escalates very quickly. It escalates very quickly. So there's a lot of things to think about. And I always try and kind of filter these different, um, you know, world, world, uh, like, scenes through the lens of the safety of women and children, which are often the ones who are um the most vulnerable in these situations and like mm-hmm. everybody suffers as yeah. a result men suffer as well right we're all connected but um but yeah with regards to like i think about this with regards to like the silicon like the the battery the electric electrification we're all gonna supplant our gas cars with electric vehicles and there's not really, there's just starting to be, but not in the mainstream. There's not really a talk, a discussion about um, the massive amounts of minerals that will be required to, um, to be mined in order to build this supposed electro- electrified future, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's going to be all renewable. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that they put renewable in like quotes or italics or something because... There is nothing renewable about lithium. About trace minerals or There's nothing renewable about that. That's right. And footnote, so Biden was in Africa, right, renewing our country's, you know, partnership with certain African nations and all of this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, certain media takes were just that. But then you peel back the layers and... He just basically signed a contract with the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as well as Sudan, South Sudan, I believe, and some other mineral uh, rich African nations Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. literally all of their mineral exports. Mm -hmm. So Biden is setting up mineral exports from Africa because the United States does not have these critical minerals. Who has all of these critical minerals? Yeah. China does. Mm. China has all of the critical minerals. So they can make the batteries, do this, do that, right? Um, And we have to outsource, we have to mine all, you know, from all these other places. The global economy. That's another thing, like, I would, you know, caution people with regards to, like, of course, the fossil fuel industry needs to be ended, reined in, taxed, should have been taxed. We should get back taxes, everything yeah. for all of it. Um, and it's not. And that's a crime. 
And that's why we have inflation with gas prices. It's not because of anything. Uh, they're getting richer than they ever have been. And nobody is putting a stop. We're not putting a stop to it. We're not rallying in the streets. Right. Why is that? Why is that? Um, well, I think that reminds me of a line I just wanted to share from a podcast I was listening yesterday to the human team with Daniel Rushkoff and with um, Corey Doctorow. And Doctorow said something relevant to what you're mentioning right now that I wanted to share. He said, the way technology is being used now is not really to replace labor, but to hide labor. And the purposefulness behind this is so they can keep us from having compassion for the human suffering that is behind the consumer society technocratic culture so to speak just wanted to share that and i thought it was uh i would add animal and ecosystem suffering to that as well right he was wanting to draw our attention to labor and the labor Mm -hmm. cooperative in particular but absolutely absolutely yeah we we could broaden broaden, that yeah scale scale out and yeah but the idea that it's being because what I also why I wanted to share that is what I like about it too is that he's he's pointing our attention to saying there's this illusion often that's sort of a subtext behind technology in our society, which is that it's about making our lives easier and it's about saving labor. And he's saying quite to the contrary of that, it's actually being used to obfuscate human suffering, ecological devastation, and broad scale um impacts that aren't ever even registered because people are now consuming things in that they see no footprint or have no relationship to them well it's interesting that they want to bring back manufacturing to this country now right so what what is going to be put into place that is going to um of course manufacturing in this country we could still be getting minerals and we will have to get minerals for all these products right from some other place right well, won't, is, we, won't we soon in the future be mining landfills because we've thrown so much of it away? I mean, Story of Stuff tells us 99% of what people consume, they're throwing out within six months of having purchased it. So with that in mind, we also know Puerto Rico with solar ended up with a totally um, broken infrastructure that couldn't recover from the second hurricane to devastate them, right? So solar ends up turning into this equally negative aspect when we you know just throw up big centralized solar arrays with no sense of decentralized distributed grids that can come back online after natural disasters much more quickly Mm -hmm. so when we're creating these um notions that something is renewable that you were bringing up like that Solar is somehow, you know, we still have to extract the minerals. And then even often when they're built and installed, they're done in such a way that isn't increasing resilience whatsoever. Because if you build centralized arrays that don't have distributed, you know, distribution, then um, you're just repeating the same problem. And that's what we've seen in Puerto Rico with solar. Yeah, and so our need for electricity is real, and it's here, and it's actually one of the things that I think about with regards to the women's rights and equality, and the rights 
the rights of women and girls in general. It's like when, if, like, if we, and like, I am so frustrated seeing so many solar panels go up and, and knowing that so much of it is going to upholding this bullshit consumerist lifestyle. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, if that was the end of the story, that wouldn't be maybe half bad. But the rest of the story is people are consuming and buying and they're depressed and children are not, you know, being fully, you know, allowed to experience child, allowed to experience childhood or being able to be present. Their parents aren't Mm -hmm. able to be present with them Mm -hmm. uh, because of one or various things, but also then all the waste that is created from this stuff. So we're literally living in a society that it has no comprehension of the consequences of the choices that we make on a daily basis from the most mundane to the most complex right Mm -hmm. and i think it's the real mundane ones that we buy like what are we going to buy to eat i need to buy this thing you know to fix this or Mm -hmm. this product or whatever it is um yeah and then here we are Christmas season with cons- conspicuous consumption and batteries. And this is one of the things that really gets me like batteries are in every, everything little kids with light up mm, shoes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and toothbrushes that light up and yeah. all of these kinds of like cheap consumer goods or not so cheap consumer goods that are made with all of these products that are just actually meant to be thrown away once their life is done. Mm-hmm. You know, what are, how, what kind of creatures are we that would use human labor to mine these minerals that separates these humans from their land? Just like we've been separated from the land, that's how the economy started, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. through, you know, the Enclosure Acts. I mean, obviously, economy is ancient and old but like as we can trace you know then they were calculating how many sheep they could raise on these greens if they excluded everybody and then sold the sheep right so that's Mm -hmm. kind of how things started but um and force people into labor in the city and force people into labor all of a sudden people had to get a job that's right they had to work what so they could so they could eat so and then so the same thing is happening in all these other countries yeah, and then turned India into a cotton indigo farm that they could then extract value from and add into a product, but in the textile mills in Europe that the Enclosure Act had forced the labor force. Right? Yeah, it's all in, connected. Colonization is all yeah. connected. Colonization wars all based around resources and gaining access to resources and monopolizing resources. And who gets wealthy? The wealthy. The wealthy continue to get wealthy. The wealthy continue to get propped up. The wealthy here are now um, some, but the right are considering them some kind of freedom champions, which is really an incredible thing. But um, let's not get (laughs) distracted by that. Would you want to share that other passage that said the piece about um, the two two world economies? I I felt it was had some interesting. So the person who's speaking here is Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And it's titled, Avoiding One World, Two Systems. 
There is a lack of support in Asia and Africa for the Euro-American bloc against Russia after its invasion of Ukraine, not because there is a pro-Russia bloc, but because these countries are alienated from and cynical about Western-led institutions. For this reason, the West should turn its attention to remodeling existing multilateral institutions to better accommodate their concerns and interests. China has already established the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and has long contemplated an Asian monetary fund that would supplant the International Monetary Fund. If the West does not act, we will end up where we are already headed. One world, two systems. So the IMF, the World Bank and the IMF Fund, I think are interesting things to think about the role they've played in the, um, in the, in the centralization, in the globalization um, of the world's economy. The globalized economy being the major game player that we're thinking about as we, uh, you know, in these podcasts, one of the major themes is the relocalization of the economy as an intelligent response to the globalization, not a reactionary response to it, but simply a attempt to build resiliency, as is popular to say these days, baked into the system that we begin to build in the midst of the failing centralized globalized system. We envision a new system that's by the people, for the people, regionally resilient in the face of a rapidly changing planet. So what are your thoughts about, you know, what, what you just read there? Um, and do you have thoughts about it? I don't have so many thoughts about it. About, I just kind of like... Or about some of those themes. What do you think is, or what, what's your take on a good, um, yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts about a response to some of the information shared in those different articles? What are, what, what's a good, um, way for us to collectively strategize? First of all, talking about this stuff and not that I want to just bash them, but I would say that they, they, they represent a certain, um, section of thought based on their hierarchical status, um, both mm-hmm. men, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're white, but, um, right. Predominantly patriarchal. Yeah. And, and like, you know, we get attached to different systems because they're the systems that we're used to for better or for worse. And it kind of puts us into this like bifurcated form of thinking we either have them or we don't you mm-hmm. know oh mm-hmm. it would be bad to lose them or like i just feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot of different there's many different ways of thinking and instead of like seeing these situations and saying oh that can't happen we're, it's kind of like we have to even read these things always critically and and always look at other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And always question other things that might arise and could happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and so we are in a very interesting time right now with regards to all this. And, you know, also understanding what Ch- 
Chinese people have to say and mm-hmm. what other people have to say, not just Westerners, you know, mm-hmm. about what is going on. And so um, yeah. I'll read this next one by Zhang Yongnan. Yong Yong I'm sorry if I butchered this person's name, but they're the director... Advanced Institute of Global and Contemporary China Studies, Chinese University of Hong Kong, Shenzhen. Uh, the end of hyperpowers. The, world, the post-World War II order is collapsing because the world is breaking up into a more evenly distribute, distributed power structure. There is no longer a hyperpower, only major powers and regional powers. The West's liberal ideology will continue to exist, but it will no longer be the prevailing paradigm. What makes a major power, or what makes others consider it a major power, is not how it challenges the old order, nor its ability to wage war, but its responsible responsibility and ability to promote and maintain international peace. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a really necessary, so that provides, so we have these other people kind of, we got to prevent war. We mm-hmm. got to do this. Mm-hmm. We got to or be the mm-hmm. the dominant cop. Right. This is the way that we've done it through the IMF, right? The International Monetary Fund. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know all of the things about the IMF. Honestly, I mean, I've heard well, talk I about can, a lot. I, Contextually, I understand it, but um, but right. without getting involved in that, this is providing another way to think about things. A superpower would be promoting peace. A superpower, what does promoting peace mean? Promoting peace means a lot more than just no war. Because how can you have peace if you don't have clean water? Mm-hmm. How can you have peace if you don't have food to mm-hmm. eat? How can you have peace when you are driving by tons of unhoused people thinking that this is some problem mm-hmm. that the city just needs to deal with as opposed to society, mm-hmm. which means you and me mm-hmm. and everyone else? Yeah. Yeah, and I for I don't necessarily like the the militant language of it, but it brings to mind for me um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s some of his last focus area was what he was calling the war on poverty, and many people say that it's part of what drove support from much of his popular base was the fact that he started going after sure, economic sure. disparity as the fundamental thing that needed to change in order for society to be healthy or moral. But there, there is a caveat in here. Like, as I ruminate on this a little bit more, it sounds very lofty. It sounds like just what we need, right, to mm-hmm. promote peace. It sounds like all of that. Mm-hmm. But that is actually also what Xi Jinping uses as a way to remain a complete controller uh-huh. of people's lives in China. This auspices because they, they the are nobody. Keep... Nobody is unhoused mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. If they need a house, they are given a place to stay. If they mm-hmm. if they don't have shelter, like there's no homeless people there. But are you going to be surveilled, and then your your reputation will be available for and I'm sure for prospective hire uh, like prospective employers to look at to see what kind of person you are in society. Right. I mean, to a certain extent, people do look at Facebook and will vet people um, and do internet searches off of them. But this mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. like a few tiers above that, mm-hmm. where it is a system by which people's uh, reputation is. Um, is scrutinized and provided a number 
what kind of person they are, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so like, and I feel like that's the same thing, you know, we're, we're, we're freedom, but not so much freedom. Free speech, but n- not total free speech, right? Right. Do we want free speech? What does that mean, free speech? What does that mean, free speech, when we have people in control of megaphones while other people do not have megaphones? Is mm-hmm. that free speech? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not free speech. So media conglomerates have the megaphones. Anybody who's wealthy has the megaphones, right? Everybody has the megaphones. Who doesn't have megaphones? People who are poor. Um, you know, people who are vulnerable. People who are disabled. People, you know, all mm-hmm. these people have do not have megaphones in this free speech supposed loving country. Do we really support free speech? So now... We're going to allow Nazis into all of these different areas where private businesses, say Twitter, of course, we're going to talk about Twitter because everybody's talking about Twitter, but it just transferred ownership to Elon Musk. And so now we have the wealthiest man in the world controlling what a billion people say and do, saying whether or not what they say is appropriate. Also, he's blocking journalists canceling just completely Mm. banning them from the site because Mm. they're saying not nice things about him right so all of these things are happening and yet he's a proponent of free speech um so just not letting platform so letting nazis (laughs) letting all these other people who are talking about hate crimes who have doxxed people who have committed really um terrible things or against transgender people um, against LGBTQ people, all that kind of stuff, um, which has become, you know, the latest hot button, terrible issue in this, um, in this drama that's playing out right now. Um, anyway, which you know, is after what? what do you where I don't know what you were. You need, if you could elaborate on well, what you were just that the right to. wing have latched onto LGBTQ people as as their latest enemy. They've already, you know, got uh, abortion rights in the bag. It's already essentially up to states now mm-hmm. whether or or not abortion will be made um, legal or illegal, or how they will, you know, how they will legislate for abortion. Um, but n- so they're not focusing on that anymore. Now they're focusing on supposed the, the the safety and rights of children which is you know they don't they're focusing on like the mutilation of bodies through early intervention hormone therapy or um through any kind of surgeries now mind you children are not having any kind of sex transition surgery these, these are adults that are having that um, and the people who are undergoing hormones at a young age are, I think somebody determined it was like about a thousand people in our whole entire nation. So they're blowing this up to be, and this is like through doctors. This is not like just a child all of a sudden deciding that this is what they need to do. This is right, after right, therapy right. and doctor's visits and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and yeah. do we have a history of seeing suicides go down? Do we have a history of seeing, you know, truly children feeling happy in their bodies after, or people feeling happy Not in their children. bodies after that? Yeah. Not so, right. but Adults. But no, but children have body dysmorphia as well. And so through... With I the surgery in particular. 
to clarify. I already clarified that it was only adults having that. Yes. So hormone therapy is also something. But all this to say that they're focusing on this, hyper-focusing on this, so that they can have another whipping boy, right? So mm-hmm. they can have another cudgel or another topic to hit with their cudgel, another topic to rally people around, to make them violently insane because now there was a shooting at an LGBTQ bar, right? Where a bunch of people were killed. Um, That's happened in the past as well. But it's very dangerous. Um, And I was bringing this up. Why? Why were we talking about you asked me to explain this more, and now I don't know where I went with this. Um, that's yeah. I was just wondering what the reference was that you were saying about the latest thing that was already happening with the polarization of dialogue by the right through the media, taking it in the direction. Yeah, of I don't. Stigmatizing I don't understand what I was saying. LGBTQ, but yeah, it's just like the latest that's, thing, right? Yeah, it's just gotcha. the latest enemy. You yeah. know, when you're gonna Thank try you and inflame the it. base. And we're going to try and inflame people who are easily manipulated mm-hmm. and not critical thinkers. Um, then you are going to, you know, you have to have constantly a new source of something to keep them enraged by. This is what yeah. keeps media conglomerates going. This is what keeps, um, um, you know, demagogues and, you know, petty tyrants going. This mm-hmm. is basically the fuel right. for the masses. And I would say that this is like kind of the dark side of the circuses, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the circuses, which are all fun and, and games and everything like that. And then we have the cir- circuses, which are like complete, total, hyperbolic, violent narratives that target vulnerable people. Um, and and the violent outbursts that happen are celebrated, Right. Mm-hmm. It's frightening, actually, this territory that we're going into because I think most of us want to try and live as humans on Earth doing this human democracy um, <laughs> um, um, you know, experiment w- without the extrajudicial violent acts. Um, but this is where we are, you know. This is where we are right now. And... Um, and it's going to take a lot of solutions, a lot of different people coming together. It's not just one solution. It's a lot of solutions, a lot of strategies, talking about it, realizing it, you know, and they're all on this, you know, pedophile tip saying that Democrats are pedophiles and abusing children, trafficking children, you know, just anything to create outrage and um, one of the most vocal, I'm not going to even name his name, but he's a Catholic. And I'm like, buddy, get your own house in order. Like, I don't know of any other institution that is more f- filled with pedophiles and total crimes against humanity mm-hmm. with regards to, like, mm-hmm. the abuse and murder of Native American children at the hands of these Catholic institutions Mm -hmm. all across the United States and Canada, like there still hasn't been a reckoning about all this stuff. You just kind of, you know, the thing with our, our lives is like, it's very debilitating to us, to me, to always be outraged. You can't, you have to have a vehicle, you have to have a way to, to, 
to feel like you're contributing to positive solutions and you need a break. And oftentimes forgetting is our break. We forget things. And so that's why history always needs to be recollected and we need to tell history to the younger younger generations and we need new interpretations of history so yeah that's history right. is yeah. super Who's, important exactly because we're Who's always history? reflecting what we're looking history? back and reflecting wow wow you know like we were reflecting today i was reflecting sitting with juniper reading her some stuff that how how lucky she is to be growing up in this time and like what an irony to say that right but how lucky she is to be growing up at this time with so much cultural criticism of technology. Whereas in the 90s, everybody was like glassy-eyed and starry-eyed and saw it as this new utopia and da-da-da. And really, to truly understand these things, if people in the 90s were thinking systemically, if they were thinking about the entirety of the system of computers, how they come to us, how they are made, how they are disposed of, you know, how they were brought into this world through the military industrial complex, how the internet came about through the military industrial complex, like all of these kinds of things. Um, But really the toxic legacy of them and then, you know, what we know about human, um, human psychology and society and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm, We, mm -hmm. there, you know, I saw... I would read these certain magazines like Mondo 2000 and mm-hmm. maybe Wired and stuff like that when I was in the 90s. And I would just be like, nothing good is going to come of this. Like, okay, not nothing good. But like, it is going to be very oh. challenging for humans. And I, there have been very positive things that have come into technology. And there will continue to be very positive things that come of technology. But if we don't have a critical, if we aren't, critically thinking and applying a critical lens and have like some kind of agreed, (laughs) at least with Mm -hmm. many of us Mm -hmm. about these, these, um, these terms of engagement Mm -hmm. for the internet and for technology, then it will, well, be very dangerous yeah i think it's a sad state of affairs to be in a world where it matters this much because frankly it doesn't make any sense rationally that humans spend so much time talking about technology that's Mm -hmm. one of the big mistakes right now of our attention by putting so much attention and making it central to our lives it simply perpetuated a already broken dysfunctional extractive toxic society and economy This society was already so far off track that I would have never expected it to have done the right thing with the computer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. So by the time the computer came around, we'd already already blown up 900 atomic bombs in this country. Okay, well, shout out to my friend (laughs) Stefan Helmreich, who we actually should have on this show. Sure. Who wrote his his, um, PhD dissertation uh i don't know if it's dissertation but he wrote a book i'm I'm pretty sure it was that called silicon second nature and he his basic thesis his question was if white middle class males and probably judeo-christian as well uh Mm -hmm. are creating ai Mm -hmm. what 
what kind of what are its what, applications? What, yeah, what will yeah. AI then be? Yeah, right. Yeah, and so thinking about that, thinking about how the internet would have been different. Yeah, if like if our society were different, were different. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So I mean, it, it also you know recently I was reading an '80s article by Vandana Shiva on reductionist science, and in it she makes the claim that eighty percent of science and technology has been developed for nothing but war and extraction industries. And she's basically saying, we have to acknowledge that we largely have no ethical compass when it comes to what, no moral sense about what we're doing with these manipulative capacities that we've created and and largely what we're doing with them is perpetuating, digging ourselves deeper into a hole rather than following the age old good advice that the best way to get out of a hole is you you stop digging. Mm-hmm. And our continued building of computers, spending time on computers, crowing about, oh, but they did do some good nonsense if we looked at the waste stream, environmental impact, and cost in human suffering, and if instead we focused on feeding the world's people in ways that were truly reliable and localized, this whole obsession we have with technology is really an afterthought to the true gift of civilization, which is the ability to be fed, the ability for us to have a good life and the freedom and liberties to choose for ourselves what to do with our free time and to have lots of it, right? And this um, this whole focus on technology has been about just perpetuating business as usual, commodification of reality, which is I was sharing earlier before we started recording our session here that you know, to me, a really big hinge pin in this whole process is the electrification of America and the world and the rollout of that. And what you're seeing with computers now is the ability to use satellites to deliver energy to remote phones as a key part to the rollout of another phase of product consumption. So you first have to create the ability well, yeah, for people of course, to plug in, things right? Things are going to have to be electrified. But right. what are you saying? We shouldn't have electricity? Oh no, I'm simply saying that we need to look at the weaknesses of it as a mode of having services provided or work done. So how do people get to that even that thought? Well, so simply strain. put, I came to it a little earlier when I was saying we need distributed decentralized microgrids. We don't need to perpetuate centralized monstrous antiquated sure. grids. And I've mentioned in other presentation, even the independent system operators, like all the people who run around trying to keep this set of toothpicks with fish line connecting them throughout the American landscape. 11,000 miles is the number of transmission lines in the United, in just in the Northeast, right? And they're saying, and even all these companies that maintain them, they're saying, um, we need to redesign them because we're going to have to replace 4,000 miles of them in 20 years. And they're saying it should be distributed grid, should be decentralized grid, which you're absolutely right. Like most people listening, most people in the United States don't even know what that means. What the heck is a distributed grid? Well, what it means is that where your ability to send that power is actually designed into the infrastructure for the local landscape. Instead, what we have is grid-tied, centralized solar and windmill and hydro. And when it's grid-tied and centralized, it does not provide any meaningful electrical service to the local population where 
the power plant is. Like that's where like the, the solar, solar field that's in Napanok. That's right? right. That's every solar field. Yeah. They're all tied into centralized grid. And how the, much is lost over that? I mean, we're getting into the grid is still inherently inefficient. Exactly. There's the so much loss. It can be 13% to 27% loss in line, yeah. um, line, like they call it, uh, there's a word for it, sloughing. It's when you have so much load in a line that it just loses it. And then as we've, you know, then if you live within a quarter mile of high tension lines, you're more likely to get leukemia and an array of immunodeficiency you know, related you, diseases. You have to look up the the the, the study. On I've, that. Looked totally. for, I've looked. I've looked for NIH. those, and I haven't been able to find any. Yeah, well, I'll, I haven't I'll, been able to. Find I'll put any. it. So I'll put it in the footnote to this podcast. You can look. I haven't been able to find that. We'll put it in the. Um, we'll put it in a link in the footnote to the podcast for sure. Yeah. So. It's about people having their needs met by systems that are extractive and exploitative inherently and, the, and a, a particular end-of-the-pipe product so you're not that's saying been put no. on a pedestal, which is the computer, is really just an ancillary byproduct of a much more substantial um, violation of human rights and ecological justice that's been going on for well, let's, hundreds of years. Let's, yeah. Right. I think like just that, the latest kid on the block. Yeah, and so now what are we going to do with it? So, so it's here. Undermine, it's not going anywhere. Undermine it by by creating another system that makes it obsolete for the basic necessities, which are feeding ourselves, housing ourselves, clothing ourselves, and having reliable infrastructure for the real needs that are foundational to our lives. And then those ancillary, supplemental, fun-filled things are secondary to our lives. Not primary. The bread and circuses. Yeah. Still entertained, still part of a global economy, but let's have more of what we eat come from a reasonable distance, right? Let's have more of what we wear come from ways that we can have a relationship with, right? Let's have buildings and and uh, structures that, that actually have local vernacular and character and are a reflection of a responsible harvesting. All these things that we teach about in our classes are about a culture and an economy. I like as a quote to share as we wrap up here. And if you have anything else you want to add, I just wanted to share this quote from um, also the Cory Doctorow team human. It was an interview in Ottawa, Canada from that. I'll put the link to that also in the um, description of this podcast. But I really like this phrasing. He says, rather than having human beings serve an economy, why don't we have an economy that serves human beings. I think people would say that that's what it does. <laughs> you know? But we know that, in fact, it doesn't. Because an economy that serves human beings wouldn't contaminate the air, contaminate the well, soil. Well, it does serve human beings. people to just go further like into debt. Point zero zero one percent of them. <laughs> yeah, they don't count as part of the crew. They're passengers. I think that... Uh, it's sad that you're absolutely right. A very, very small number of people have a great deal of leverage. But in part, as you said, when you were talking about China, the people have the power. Yeah. And the illusion that this 1% in the media and the technology. I would, I would posit, listeners, that it could be as simple as unplugging in order to mm-hmm. turn on definitely. and tune in. Just unplug. This latest done Twitter thing, definitely. Podcast, I still outside. go to my... <laughs> certain things that I read about, but I'm 
it's not, um, yeah, it's just like, I can't engage yeah. in nonsense. Yeah, let's get back to the real world. Go outside, so, breathe. There's a lot of information. Go on there for information. Have a certain amount of time. Be conscious of it. And then yeah. go do other things. Yeah, I'd Like say, nothing. Right. Like just contemplating. We need space for our brains. I would say too, like all of that. Uh, we haven't really talked about it, but all of that staring at screens, all of this information, like how, how much can you really retain mm-hmm. that, that there's that question, but then yeah. what is it doing to our brains when we're constantly overstimulated? We're constantly projecting into these other realms of reality and not reflecting on our day on um, our time here on earth on just whatever the things that brains do they they order reality they order our time here they make sense of it in ways that take time they take time they take downtime we cannot mm-hmm. truly understand ourselves if we're constantly engaged in other people's lives, mm-hmm. whether it's through watching things or reading about other things, even if it is super important stuff, we we need to prioritize downtime for our brains. And downtime doesn't mean, you know, like truly just in the middle of the day, just chilling out and, and what we would call like zoning out mm-hmm. or daydreaming. Mm-hmm. We need more daydreaming. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the conversation. Um, More mornings. More to come. Um, Keep your ears tuned. uh, And yeah, as the as the holiday seasons begin to embroil us, um, take to heart this unplugging and connecting with each other in real time. And keeping computers off and screens off and wireless turned off and enjoy um, your family time and your community time and just being with fellow humans and uh, go for a walk. Go for a walk and every day. I always like to stretch to the four directions and remind yourself you're on a planet in outer space, circling a sun where life has been evolving for 3.8 billion years, and you're part of a big family and a big party, and just kick back and enjoy the ride. Thanks, folks. Join us for our next permaculture design course coming up February 11th, fully online with an amazing ray of guest teachers. We've got Ramis Kent, key teacher with Jeff Lawton and Permaculture Research Institute. We've got Larry Santoyo, head of the Permaculture Academy, and longtime friend of Bill Mullison and Toby Hemingway and Scott Pittman. We've got David Harper with over 20 years of conservation work, land protection, and effective fundraising for Agrarian Trust. We've got Adriana Magana, social activist, herbalist, radical health advocate, and we've got Paula Hewitt-Amram, who's been doing more than 20 years of community organizing in New York City and is also a radical social permaculturalist. So check out our course, Once in a Lifetime Experience with World Class Educators. 
It'll be starting February 11th. And stay tuned for our next podcast. We've got some great guests coming up. Brian Fagan will be with us on January 10th, and I'll be adding to that list soon. Thanks for listening.